Uh, welcome once again, listeners, to Yeah, Uh-huh with Lisa. And Phil. And our frequent flyer co-host from California, Aaron. Boy, your arms must be tired. Hello, hello. <laughs> hello. This week, we're talking to Ed Hartman. Ed Hartman has two movies. I hope he'll let me use his first name since I've already messed up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we got a yeah. ton of things we could talk about, starting with starting with whatever you would like to talk about. And I know you're a expert in uh, music licensing, and uh, you are a composer. And uh, some of your work has appeared on very prestigious um, programs. Like, you know, we talked about having Kate Bush on because she was on Stranger Things, but we got Ed instead. Yeah, that's right. Stranger Things. No, I've been, I don't know if I'm an expert, but I've been teaching. I was just actually creating some uh, posting on Facebook and I realized I've been involved in what we call sync nowadays, but music licensing, getting your music in film and TV for over 20 years. And uh, and I've been teaching for over a decade uh, in classes and one-on-ones and things like that. Zoom has been great for that. Uh, pandemic really didn't slow me down on that one. And in fact, uh, creating music as a composer is something you can do right through pandemics or World War Three. Hopefully not, but um, well, I don't know about that. Anyway, uh, yeah, and I and in the last year, I I got a track that's been in a lot of things. This one track is very hot. It's called Football Funk, and it's basically a marching band tune that mm-hmm. I composed back in the in two thousand four or five or something on a Tascam eight track digital. Um, Kind of the old, the younger brother from the original Tascam four-track cassette decks, which were really trippy analog decks. Anyway, but that allowed people like me to at home record rather than going to a studio and spending a lot of money. Well, anyway, I was able to record kind of uh, being a drummer percussionist as well, all the drum parts and kind of made the brass on keyboards and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. This funky southern marching band track that was uh, it's been in uh, the Blind Side. And it's been in Scooby-Doo, The Mystery Begins. It's been in Legacies on TV. It's been, it's been wow. on all these films. And then it was in, it was taken into Stranger Things. I think the, I, I've only watched a couple of the early episodes. Uh, and I'm a big sci-fi fan, but for whatever reason to get into it. And it was like in season four, the latest one, episode one, which is where everything really went nuts with the viewership on that. Last I looked, there's like 1.7 million viewers or something crazy on there. As I, I'm afraid to say that I'm not paid per viewer for that <laughs> or anything like that. Otherwise, I would be living in Hawaii right now. So they're not a royalty uh, but, situation. But, but the royal, no, the royalties are, are very good. They're better than things I've seen before, and I still have to wait to see. But in the last week, I got my kind of first part of that. Um, and it was, you know, at least double or triple what other shows would have normally been. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so I, I teach classes and I have an online class these days. All of this stuff's in edhartmanmusic.com, which is my website. Um, but I love teaching it. And uh, really, uh, again, it's not hard to do if you have literally any music uh, that's been on tape or anything from any era, as long as you own everything. It's relatively easy to get it out there, getting it on TV and film, that's something if you want to try and do that individually, d- directly, it's difficult. But if you can work through music libraries uh, or yeah. music, what we call uh, sync agents or music supervisors, or just working with directors directly, also score films, 
uh, those are those are ways you can do it. So it's a lot of fun. I also had a track on uh, the Twilight Zone, which was kind of a bucket list item for me. I really wanted to do the when when they we were originally talking about um, rebooting it. I was I was really actually tried to figure out a way to do the theme on that. But you know that's my real goal in life is to get a true television theme. Mm -hmm. so, so the Twilight Zone, the reboot uh, from mm -hmm. was it Apple TV that did that a couple years ago? Uh, well, I think it was CBS Paramount owned the original rights to the series to this day. And uh, yeah, great. I forgot the name of the director guy, but man. And, and the one that that's in was, Rod I think, Sterling. the last one of the last season. Uh, and it was a really funny episode that used a lot of characters from the original Twilight Zone, the, the uh, To Serve Man episode. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what they used was like a 1950s Muzak track. <laughs> I mean, just a wild goofy kind of a thing that I had written. And inevitably the stuff I get in there is originally for something else. I pitch it for something else and then it winds up sitting in a music library and, and gets into another. We're, we're talking about the latest reboot. Yeah. With Peel. Jordan Peel. Yeah, Jordan right? Peel. That's yeah. right. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. 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 I watched a that few episodes good. of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you are a man of, uh, Oh, I, I wanted to ask, what's your favorite TV theme? Oh man, jeez! We we had a yeah. recent. Uh, we were a guest on another podcast where they uh, had like a NCAA style bracket where we had to. There was an odd number of guests, and we had to vote between theme songs. And we were we were in parts one and two of probably four. Right, right. man. I'd have to think about TV themes. Twilight Zone's right up there. You know, yeah. I was, I, and I have a newsletter about licensing, and and I've been doing uh, uh, a little article about composer of the month, and late, and the latest guy, uh, Neil Hefty, who was a jazz composer, did. Um, oh God, I just lost it. What did he do? Oh, Batman. Oh <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Blues, you know. Yeah, and that's uh, like in the, the Nelson Riddle Orchestra, the one made famous by that. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Um, you know, I can say movie theme, you know, to be quite honest, my favorite movie theme of all time uh, was the original Casino Royale theme uh, back in the 60s. Uh, man, Herb Alpert and um, oh, the, bright, the com composer was different. Yeah. Anyway, for whatever reason, I consider that the greatest piece of music ever written. <laughs> I don't know why. Good one. I just got hooked on it. What is that? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Go Herb, man. <laughs> we yeah. also have the one with the whipped cream somewhere. Whipped cream and the other delights. Other delights. She that's, just that's, passed that's, away. The gal that was on that at a hundred years yeah. old or something. I think she lived around here. It's, I'm I'm in the Seattle area. Wow. As well. I'm in uh, Thousand Oaks, California. So we're in the mm -hmm. same time zone. Yeah. Yeah. Philip and I are in Cincinnati, Ohio. And freezing and North sneezing. Originally from there. I've been sneezing and, and wheezing for a week. Now. Freezing. Free, freezing, sneezing, and wheezing. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I think the last time I was in Cincinnati was maybe in the 70s visiting a friend who lived there. I um, thought, so. no, just kidding. <laughs> I thought I recognized you, man. Yeah, we yeah. saw you. I was in high school, so. You thought you'd get away. Yeah. yeah. I know it's actually yeah. been snowing here all day. No, which it doesn't do in Seattle way. that much, but man, we're getting it, you're getting snowed right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, awesome. it's, it's, it's wow. It's, I don't know. Let's keep going for 
an, an overnight. It's threatening well, to maybe rain is, here later in the week. It, it's very cold in the winter here because I was we were just down at the waterfront, and uh, when you're when it's kind of snowing and you're at the the ocean level. It's mm -hmm. very humid, and you know I lived. I was originally from the Chicago area, Evanston, and uh, there you Our have Midwest. yeah, humid summer, dry winter. So you know it's a dry cold or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But out here it's the reverse. You get these wonderfully dry summers, but really free. It you know it could be thirty five degrees here, and it felt like you were inside a uh, a refrigerator. Yeah, we it had ninety percent really humidity today. Really? There should be some ice rain there in Chicago. And it wasn't yeah. raining. That's what's weird. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I should think well, if it's ninety percent humidity, you should be able to see the humidity. That's true. Well, I and I went to college uh, at Indiana in Bloomington, and you know, I all I could remember was Gene Shepard's comment about growing up in Indiana or something that you could slice the air with a knife. <laughs> yeah, hundred and five. Yeah, yeah. But you mentioned college. You have. Degrees in music, right? I mean, yeah, you, you... I got a degree in uh, percussion, uh, and and the degree was really aimed toward performance, classical, being in an orchestra, which isn't really something I wanted to do. But I wanted to be a percussionist, but I, and I'd always played mallets and drums and everything. I'd trained pretty heavily. My uh, high school had an incredible music department. It was right at the peak of the baby boom, and there were five thousand students in this high school which is not small, and it wow. was divided into east, west, north, south, a huge complex that looked like a prison. But anyway, there was a music department that drew, drew uh, students from all four schools. So we, we had this amazing quality. There was an electronic music department, percussion ensembles that a lot of Northwestern grads would teach there. So it was closer to a college environment, and that's probably the biggest reason why I got into music. Anyway, yeah, so I went cool. to Indiana and studied percussion, but I was always writing music on my own, whether they liked it or not. And a lot of times they didn't when I'd add it to a recital and they'd cut a 20 minute piece down to seven minutes, you know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, that was your uh, teacher. He wasn't like J.K. Simmons and Whiplash, right? He wasn't uh, like a demonic. He wasn't, but there was a teacher there that kind of was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not that, not, not uh, physically like that. throwing things at you. I, I've seen that, but yeah. um, no, but in a, you know, psychologically devastating. I, I, there was a teacher there who would um, communicate with students, whether you were his direct student or not, via little notes on his, on his uh, door. And it would just say, you know, Mr. Hartman, please learn some bass drum technique or whatever it was. And I saw people faint when they walked by this door, just afraid they were going to see something. Yeah, uh, he, he was infamous. But mm -hmm. uh, anyway, but my teacher was more like um, was really a guru. He was. Uh, oh, what, who am I thinking of in uh, Star Wars? The uh, Yoda small thing. What's his name? The, the oh, green Yoda. guy. What's that? Yoda. Yoda. Yeah, he was very much like Yoda. And uh, and he would kind of sit there. African American instructor. He had studied in Paris at the conservatoire and really couldn't be in orchestras because of racial issues. Mm. Uh, so he wound up teaching at the college. But uh, we learned so much from him. And and he would just sit there and go, "Well, um, well, well Ed, uh, you know, just try it this way." And and I swear, whatever he said, oh my God, it was yeah. life changing moment. And, and it was like, you know, move your thumb this way or just whatever. 
Right. Just wild experience. But I, I really enjoyed the school and I and I was played a lot of percussion and orchestras and things like that. On the side, I was playing uh, folk music, jazz, a little bit of everything. And I've always been uh, probably a little bit more on the mallet side as a performer playing marimba and vibraphone. Uh, as a recording person, I play everything. Um, my studio's right here and, and I have everything right here, including keyboards, which I can... You know, if I want to play along while I'm doing a podcast, I can. You know, a little bit of one. All right. <laughs> you can turn on the captions and just have the music play over it, like that's the right. Song we talk about, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's uh, I've always been fascinated. You have such a, a vast array of things to uh, to talk about. You know, uh, we we kind of focused in on the project that. Uh, it's taken up a lot of your time over the last few years, and that is the work of of Richard Lyford um, yeah, Richard, as Richard the H. Earth. That's right. Yeah, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Richard H. Lyford, H. for Hoover. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and and uh, you know, I was thinking, I'll, I'll get into that in a second. It just for kind of background, because some of this all gets there, but. Um, yeah, I moved. I moved to Seattle in 1980 as a teacher. I was always involved in getting things going, becoming kind of the center of what was going on. I created composers series, and this got me more into composing. Music co-op, uh, got on boards of arts organizations, stuff like that. I, I did a lot of performing. I uh, played at Wild Recital Hall in New York City as a soloist. Yeah, Decided nice. that was not for me. Uh, but I had to do it. Uh, I released a big Christmas recording called Marimba Bells of Christmas in the 1990s. That led to a lot of uh, mm -hmm. licensing work. Um, and then the the wildest thing that happened uh, in, I had also, in the middle of all that, for 25 years, I ran the drum exchange in Seattle, a drum shop. Figure that out. Um, and it was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of work. And luckily in 2017, uh, my wife and I closed the store just out of tired of fighting Amazon, which was literally across the lake from us. <laughs> we could yeah. see them. Uh, but, uh, you know, pre-pandemic. And if we had, a, we would never made it through the pandemic, which is good. But anyway, I, I started teaching in my studio uh, next to my house and it was, we were using it for storage. Um, and what happened, and this is almost as wild as the film itself, um, I had taught a kid in in my store uh, years before. I don't know how many, six, seven, eight years before. And then um, in 2017, not long after I closed the store, I started to, his mother contacted me and wanted to take some hand drum lessons. And I said, sure. So I started to teach her some hand drums. And um, I, I'd, I've been making a lot of YouTube videos of PR for my, especially my licensing more and more. Uh, and I had a old Buster Keaton scene with public domain and i decided to throw a track against it and it came out really well i mean it, it's perfect you know i didn't do any editing with the with the film i'm not gonna touch keaton you know but the the music perfectly synchronized itself that happens as a composer even if i, I can almost throw anything against the film and the, the audience would eventually make connections rhythmically or whatever to the scene it may not even fit but they they kind of lock it in. This is why we have a problem in scoring called Temp Love by a director where they fall in love with the track because they yeah. just get used to it, you know. Right. Uh, but anyway, so I, I showed her this, just say, hey, here's something I did. And then she looked at me and said, well, that's kind of interesting. I, I, I have this film um, that was by my great uncle. 
and and I'm, you know, is that something you want to score? And I said, uh, yeah, that's a great idea. And 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 you know, she's she's uh, she had the money to do it. So uh, so she hired me to to put this on, and this took about a month. All sorts of crazy adventures start, sprouted out of this thing. Um, mm-hmm. In fact. We got involved in uh, digitizing. Well, she was started to digitize the rest of the film estate, which she also had at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not a lot of the films from his early era. This is so. This is film as the earth turns. That one. Um, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Was, was done when he was about nineteen twenty years old, nineteen thirty seven, nineteen thirty eight. I mean, think about that. 19 or 20 years old, and he makes this movie. What was his ninth film? I mean, come on. And he'd written 58 scripts, screenplays and and stage plays by then. Just a remarkable Mm -hmm. upbringing. And then he winds up going to work for Disney and all sorts of stuff. Well, so, so I score this thing. We start discovering more scenes that weren't in the original digitized version. Uh, and I had to start becoming an editor and I figured out where the scenes fit. And I really wasn't a hundred percent sure, but it made, cause I, when I first saw the film, I'm going, this doesn't make sense. What, what you know, there's something must've happened here. So it was really odd. And it, it originally, we had about 30 minutes and I built it up to about 45. The film may have been even longer, but this is what survived. Um, so I, I wound up doing that and getting more and more involved. Eventually we, we, it came out pretty good. Uh, I did it scene by scene. And we brought it to a place in Seattle, a, a, a post-mastering kind of a studio. And that was wonderful to take something that I had produced in my own studio and bring it up to the level of theatrical presentation, which is not that easy to do. It requires a lot of, a lot of prep work on my end, too. Uh, and, and, and they did an extraordinary job, and they got heavily involved in this thing. And we said, well, what are we going to do with this thing? <laughs> well, I don't know. So we put on a, a theatrical premiere at Boeing uh, History of Flight uh, in Seattle, uh, which is really appropriate because some of the film was shot there. Right. <laughs> so it was crazy. And, and, uh, and the family's involved in this at this point. And then we thought, well, hey, why don't we throw it at the Seattle International Film Fest, which I had gotten to know them through being involved with composers organizations here. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they eventually took it in. And then using Film Freeway, we went to town putting the film uh, to film festivals. And it's in the next couple of years, it got into, I don't know, 136 <laughs> festivals. And wow. I don't know how many awards. I, I can't even remember these things. It's a crazy amount. One, one that, quite a few, yeah. Yeah. And I got a lot of best scores and stuff like that. It was really a riot. I, I went to New York City and did a festival. I interviewed his son which helped for more recent projects. And then uh, I was in LA for a number of festivals. And then we did some really crazy stuff. Um, at one point we decided, I, I looked into the Oscars and I'm thinking, what does it take to submit to the Oscars? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why not? You know, and I thought, well, this is too short, right? No, actually it's Best four, original minutes. score. Well, and not just that. I mean, we had the, we had the film rights and all it's, that. And it had never right, been, yeah, it had right never length. been re- and it had the never right been released. In I'm sorry. Oh, you need the right length and the right window in theaters, right? Yeah. Well, and, and pandemic, they changed those rules. But back in 2019, uh, it's 45 minutes. It had to be 40. So we were over that and it, it had to be released. And it, we, we had released it that year because it had never been released before. Mm-hmm. He had shown it 
Uh, and this, this, you know, was something that a lot of people kept asking, you know, how, what is this? Is this a, is this a fake? You know, what I mean? if I can make a fake this well, geez, I'd be Spielberg myself. Uh, and, and it, now we have the whole paperwork on it. I have literally this, this, this film stock. I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> how close can you get? So we did a seven day theatrical, uh, run in Glendale, a block away from the Glendale YMCA where Lifeford came first to LA in 1938. What theater was it? The Alex? The, the Lemley. 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 Okay. Yeah. And, and it had already been another Lemley for film, film festival there. So anyway, I did that and we took some ads out. We went to a variety thing. I mean, it was crazy. And uh, we entered it. Academy qualified. Yeah. It was qualified. And, uh, and, and we, at that time they were sending out DVDs uh, mm -hmm. to members of the Academy. It was costly. We, we sent out kind of select to f directors and producers. And I was guaranteed by the staff, which are very nice. It's just another film festival in the end. Yeah. Uh, and I had plenty of experience by then that a, a copy would go to Spielberg and Scorsese. And I believe they did get them. Now, whether they open that package or not. No, they probably had their people look at it, right? You know, so, hey, who knows? You you know, I, I, they they got to be interested. Black and white thing. You They're know, movie people. Right. Well, you know, you were talking before about how you, you, create, a, you create a movie. And I think about, uh, you know, where you create the score and it synchronizes with a film. And I thought about my own project like that that I did <laughs> back in uh, 1990, the Reds won the world series, right? Yeah, I'll make this real quick. I took every single out of the entire world series, put it, spliced it together. Then I overlaid the William Tell overture over it <laughs> and it synchronized perfectly. Yeah. And you know, the rousing part of the overture where it's like, dun, 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 dun. that's when the Reds were hitting like four or two home runs. Say we'll hit two home runs in the sixth inning of game three and oh, Larkin hit like a base clearing triple. All that stuff just seemed to coincide. And then it, it kind of it, it synced perfectly. It was like uh, 15 yeah. minutes. I'd love to see anyway. that. No. And I grew up watching like fractured flickers, which was on television and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. I'm telling my age here really quick, but this was all really interesting because as a kid, I was into Super 8 films, but I could never get sound to it very well. I'd, I'd have record players playing with it or reel-to-reel -reel eventually, but I couldn't synchronize it very well. Right. And it really wasn't until the, after 2000s that this became a practical idea. And using Logic, a DAW digital audio workstation on a, on a yeah. Mac or whatever, Pro Tools, whatever you want. I, I think I had two VHS players, yeah. a recorder and a player, you know. And I fed it through the other, and then I took just a clip of each at bat, the last pitch of each at bat, actually. Yeah, yeah. And there was, you know, I know iMovie at that when I was a kid, you know, yeah, I was splicing yeah. film like Lyford, same idea. And yeah. Lyford, in his early years, did some very interesting things. So, you know, I followed up this as the year turns. Um, of course, it didn't get in the Academy Awards uh, nominations or anything like that. That was what really wasn't the point. <laughs> uh, but... I, I did follow up with a short documentary, It Gets in Your Blood. And uh, that has been an almost a, an equal amount of festivals and awards and all of that. And uh, that is that is kind of his life story very mm -hmm. quickly, you know, told. Uh, and as I learned, Lyford was experimenting with dual turntables. He wrote about this in American Cinematographer in his, you know, when he was young. I know filmmakers that are still trying to get articles in that magazine. <laughs> 
you know, in their sixties. Yeah. So he had these really intense articles about making this, which gave me information to work on. Right. So over the next couple of years, I developed this documentary and have been researching it like crazy and, you know, basically cut it on iMovie uh, and, uh, and added my own music. I have so many tracks that I could find easily very good documentary style tracks for it. It was very there. good. It was informative. Yeah. The, the yeah. guy, you know, the guy, um, we're fans of like Ed Wood. Mm-hmm. We've had Jackie Naaman Jones from, it. you know, the uh, Manos, the Hand it. of Fate. Oh, no, that's I'm what, I'm getting, that's what I'm getting at here. This guy yeah. was an accomplished. He went on after this film. Yeah. And when you watch it, it's like it's kind of crude, right, with some of the effects and everything. But then when you watch it with a critical eye, you don't see strings that's holding up the spaceship. Yeah, it's, you know? it's way better. You see good shadows that go against the, uh, the, the the landscape that he set up for the plane. You know, there's some sophistication there that are, is lacking. He was, he was doing this with no budget, zero budget, yeah. nothing, with friends and family in a 16-millimeter camera. He's making all this. Going through. off into the, to the body of water. That was, you know, pretty yeah. spectacular for the time. Well, and yeah. in, in like, like for instance, in Manos, um, only two of the people in the production got paid. The dog got dog food and the little girl got hugs. So they're kind of like Funkadelic. Right. They didn't get paid either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's a great movie. <laughs> Wait a minute. Didn't she get like lollipops or something? Something like that. Yeah, it was okay. something like candy or hugs or but it, something but like that. But he was an accomplished yeah. filmmaker. He went on he to really was. Disney. Yeah. I mean, he built a, he had a career after this, you know. That's right. That's Hollywood right. was spectacular. Here's my well, thing. Um, he moved to Hollywood. He did Disney. Then he went to war. And then he went and did other things that maybe didn't bring him well, fame. But maybe went to that's war, not though, what he wanted. Went to war meant he went to Washington, D.C. and made movies. No. He was no. overseas and he was doing filming. Uh, and he was part of the... Army oh, Air Forces right. and uh, no, he was out he there. Had the whole Aramco thing going too. Yeah, eventually. I mean, there's a lot, and you watch the doc, you can yeah. get this, and I and I've learned yeah. a lot about it. And of course, the big question is, why don't we know who this guy is? You yeah. know, it's a great well, way to spend my lunch hour. I, I saw it gets in your blood, and then as the earth turns, yeah. You know what struck me about the movie was when um, they showed the world leaders at the White House, right? When, right. When Lyford had war, and mm-hmm. none of them were. They were very generic. They, and, and the world leaders at that time were anything but generic. They're like notorious. They're notorious, you know, notorious historic figures. And it just struck me. Does that? I mean, at that, it was a, it was locked in time. It was. It was, it was hilarious too when Germany went and smacked his hand down. On <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Right. But no, I had a little. Those characters were locked in time. They were not. They were not distorted by historical event. Lisa says, "Well, it's, that's because it's science fiction." But that would have been. Well, I, well I it was that it was, was 19... a d- deliberate yeah. choice. Well, this is that you got to understand that film was 1937. It was before World War right, II. He right. was anticipating what was going to happen, which is a remarkable thing. It was loosely based on uh, on a book from the 1900s. Uh, he who was it? He rocked the earth or something like that. So there was there was some science involved from that, but it was unreadable <laughs> book, yeah. and uh, and just all you know. It, it, and Lyford rewrote the thing and made it actually watchable, mm-hmm. you know. And this was his last film that he he did um, as as a big test. It wasn't his biggest film. He had done this a, a film which we don't have called The Sea Devil, which had a cast of a hundred people in it. 
mm-hmm. but I think this was the most ambitious. The, now, some of the other films, he attempted sound, uh, not only music synchronized uh, with records, but he actually tried to lock in dialogue on those using a cable synchronized from the record player and the mics to the, the to the uh, film. Or I yeah. should say the record player had the, had the burned-in dialogue. Anyway, I don't know how he did any of that, uh, yeah. but he, he was technically very proficient. And all those models uh, that he built, I'm still trying to figure out where he had the time to do this stuff. Because right. uh, that, that's a lot of work. stuff all the time. My son's, think... uh, right now, I, I, I invited him to be on this. He's into filmmaking, and he does some. Mm-hmm. He's like assistant camera work and assistant direct work. He's he's like I'm too busy. I'm in the zone working on my screenplay. So I'm like, okay, I'll leave oh, yeah. the team. Oh, when I was I there. That. He had that gun that he created out of cardboard, a functioning yeah. gun that he had for he, his yeah. Halloween costumes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you said that you said that film is lost, the one that that you just referred to. Well, sea only. Devil. Yeah, only three three of his films survived, and, yeah. and two of them are just shorter uh, clips from films that are on the DVD. Isn't it kind of a tantalizing you know. thing about Hollywood, though? I mean, when you think about, okay, I looked this up today. There was a there was a movie about Joan of Arc, Carl Theodore Dreyer's 1928, La Passion de Joan d'Arc. <laughs> yeah, sure. And um, it had been lost. It was found in 1981, you know. It was yeah. something that was lost in some archaeologist, some film archaeologists went and found that. And then there's Manos, which we just referred to. Mm-hmm. We had a couple writers on last Christmas that did a, a, a book about rescuing a wonderful, it's a wonderful life. Yeah. It's a fiction book, yeah. Yeah, being lost fictional. in time, you know. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, and there's a rock star game where the whole premise of the game is you go around Hollywood and you find lost reels. It's a puzzle game. You put it all together and it, you resolve. I think I, I never got to the end of the game, but I think it's the Black Dahlia murder. Is what mm-hmm. it is. But the, isn't that is that the tantalizing thing about Hollywood and uh, that, you know, there is there may recovering, be lost films out lost there. Films. Yeah. About discovery. Yeah. And that's and this is like it's come to mm-hmm. life. You know, well, and, and I'm at the point now where I was given the film estate. I'm responsible for it. And mm-hmm. I literally have the film stock, not only of these early films or what they have, but stuff he did for other companies, including in 1964, he did a, f- a film for the African Pavilion at the World's Fair. Uh, and it had Ossie Davis narrating. And it's a really well-made color film that you would have seen going into the pavilion. Uh, and I don't think I don't I think may have the only copy in the world of that. I think I do. Um, so there's things like that that I'm kind of dealing with, and I'm they're going to wind up at either the UW University of Washington or UCLA Film Archives. I'm guessing both have I've talked to historically about that. So there's a heavy responsibility about the stock. Luckily, mm-hmm. everything we have we digitized, but you know, digital isn't always forgiver. <laughs> you can yeah. you can screw that up probably as well as losing film. And some of it, you know, some when I first got it, some of it was was not in good shape. But uh, you know you can do a lot these days. And, it did and, look good. It looked clean. It, looked, it, it did oh, look. That, good. Yeah. You no, know, yeah. as your turns was great. But like that, I, I like that, what he did with his letters too—the fonts and the dropping the letters in there for the. Credits. Oh man, I mean, the, what he was able to do animation is off the charts, and you know people and people to this day when they respond on Amazon, it's available on Amazon demand. Um, 
they'll say, oh, this is a fake. Nobody could have that. This, they, they don't believe it based on that title sequence that somebody they thought I faked it. And I, I again, I, I'm just, you know, astounded by that. And of course, I, I, the bigger thing of all of this is that Turner Classic Movie has put it on twice on Halloween last year, cool. and then amongst a sci-fi fest in front of Metropolis, and yeah. you know things like that uh, last April. Uh, so you know, and they they and I have two wonderful intros: one from Mankiewicz and the other one from uh, oh, the gal that does the silent film Sunday series. Uh, you know, and what's interesting about found film is I was on the stage at the Seattle Film Festival at the Egyptian, which was a magnificent presentation. And mm-hmm. I had invited, I really hadn't invited the family of some of the cast members who, who are now gone, mm-hmm. but they're, they're you know, uh, their folks were still fooling around. And uh, I, was, I was on stage and I was letting know, one of them had said that, oh, I have another copy of the film. <laughs> what? Oh, wow. oh, <laughs> Holy, wow. what in the hell? You know, and so that freaked me out because all my edits now are going to be either confirmed or I screwed up. And I got the copy oh. of the film and I was correct. I edited nice. it perfectly. It was maybe what there was though, is there was one minute that was not included on my version, which has the original edits on it, literally the, the cuts from the film. So I have the original stock. This was a dub. It was a little more of a bluish tint on there. And and one thing about As the Earth Turns, it has a, a, a really kind of astounding color ending. And mm-hmm. the the dub did not. And this is before mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz, too. And, of course, he couldn't afford color film. <laughs> that was probably the biggest reason. But it works really well. It, it adds a whole yeah. dimension. So I was able to see that and confirm my edits on that as well. But that that was this really wild find. And I put the word out uh, to, you know, I, I, on film groups and things like that to keep an eye open for this. I think some things may may show up in the next few years based on my current project. Uh, now, what was weird about <laughs> literally there's a company called Something Weird. How all of this happened before I was involved was in 2013. There's a uh, let's see. The, it was originally a, originally a video called Monsters Crash the Pajama Party. <laughs> <laughs> and it's nice. by Something Weird kind of title. exploitation distribution company from Seattle. And uh, anyway, on Classic Horror Film Board, online chat group of really smart collectors and horror film freaks, uh, they started, they looked in this and there was these couple scenes in there, they couldn't identify where they were from. So over the next couple of months, intense detective work started to happen, which you can still see to this day, the entire chronology is there. And I've gotten to know all these guys. Uh, Anyway, they contacted my my student, uh, the mother and great niece, <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. and that's how this all got rolled, uh, got going on there. So anyway, so flash up to 2018 or so or 19, I finally try to get a hold of something weird for these original Scott, uh, film stock because we don't know what happened to that. I just have this rather poor dub on here with lousy music, and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, get a hold of this. And amazingly, I, I finally got a hold of uh, the gal that's the widow of the guy who started this. And her office was a couple of miles from my house. Cool. <laughs> what the hell? And I They're went over there. Been looking for you forever. I drive past your place. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, no, I mean, I yeah, it's above yeah. like a bar, you know. Isn't and I, I went over there finally and she found him, dug him up, and she was happy to get. She was actually trying to get rid of some of this stuff because she's she's moving on. 
And luckily, I hit it at the right time and was able to uh, get that. We redigitized it, and I scored those scenes, which was a lot of fun too. And again, that all's on the DVD with the uh, with the mini doc. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you know, the, the the serendipity on this is is off the charts. I, I and I didn't see any of this coming. I mean, I I you know I got out of running the store and teaching and all that, and, and this was a perfect opportunity for me because I really always wanted to make movies i'm making more and more of these you know videos on youtube and stuff and learning editing so it all kind of crashed together Uh, he he played he actually played the character pax in the film that's right right. that means peace in latin so yeah 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 Yeah, he's kind of the mad scientist kind of goes nuts you know but and he's and he's got a remarkable acting ability. Uh, right. He's only yeah. he's you yeah. only see he him toward nuts. the end, but he pretty much steals the scenes he's in. Yeah. I just oh really yeah, yeah. There's some themes in it that are really kind of uh, uh, progressive for the time. He's kind mm-hmm. of an environmentalist. You know, he was kind of an eco eco terrorist. Well, anti-war, right? I guess. <laughs> well, he figures. He can stop. He can solve the world's problems by you know threatening to kill everybody, and they'll they'll stop fighting. Right. Know, and, Badly, and... he doesn't realize. <laughs> but I, I feel like we haven't talked enough about the music in the film because, I, of course, you scored you scored the uh, the music for, for the film. Yeah, and, you know, and what's interesting about that is I really had I I was I was uh, given complete control on what I wanted to do. Uh, I, I, there was no. And and the director's gone. I, normally, when I score, I, I know the you know the director. You might score a scene a dozen times before they like it. You might develop themes and all the rest of it. Uh, and and we kind of check through it. But and and of course, when we found the extra footage, I had to rescore a few things because <laughs> everything was out of whack. Uh, so that didn't help. But you know, it it kind of kept me on on target. And it was based on a few themes. Um, there there's a, a particular chord. That's become kind of my signature, you know, chord. That's not it, but uh, it's kind of an unresolving chord. The, things like that. I, I, you know, when I used to do chats about this, I'd have some themes out. I, I don't have them that, in front of me, and I yeah, like a Steely them. Dan chord. Yeah, maybe. That, who knows where? It, but Bach used it a lot, and and be, yeah. my composing got very baroque when I first moved out here because I was with a, a harpsichordist, and so I developed a very you know, when you have a piano, you can you can play chords and melody. That's typical pianistic style. But when you're playing on a harpsichord, you don't have a, a pedal. That's just improvising. I got really good at that. So it allowed me to score, even though I had themes, I, I scored it on a piano uh, or on my keyboard initially as little small pieces, it's like writing a symphony or maybe like a chorale or something, I don't know, uh, and then orchestrated on top of them. That's not that unusual for scoring, uh, where you start with, you know, piano as your bass and then you start adding strings and winds and brass and all that. And of course, I got to add live percussion, you know, yeah. hand sure. stuff. And yeah. I was, I was proud about that as the, I, I was proud about the percussion because I, I made all the effects sounds all through real percussion instruments yeah. rather than you know i didn't want to have i wanted to be symbols every time somebody crash into something and yeah yeah oh and i and that was a that was a real scene is to get the the synchronization you know you know like right on on there in fact it was funny when we did the theatrical in uh, la 
the there's a thing called the DCP digital cinematic package that you send to yeah. theaters and it's a really involved process for whatever reason something was wrong I, about I, it I work in theatrical distribution that's yeah DCPs are my life. well the, the the wrong cut of the film wound up on the DCP and I was in the theater watching the first thing and it was like you know I should say everything was off like oh my god uh, what the hell so we had to make a few quick changes in a hurry. Had to, so had to that, get a different could, key, probably. Yeah. I mean, nobody else would have noticed, but it was. I had painfully worked every yeah thing right. out on there, and it was. It was you know, your baby. Yeah. Right, so it right. was. It was period. It was classical. Now, what was wild about this is, um, after talking to his son, um, I mean, I recorded that interview. You got a little bit of it on the documentary. Uh, he told me what his dad' musical tastes were. And he was talking about like Shostakovich and uh, I don't know, uh, no Dvorak, things like that. Yeah. And that's really good. That I it scared the hell out of me first. I thought, oh my god, this is like a playlist I should have used. But in fact, the score is somewhat like that. So I, I think I'm okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know, having his film stock a few feet away from me does give me everything I do with this project is very personal. And I, I have a heavy responsibility. So everything I do, I have to check with Richard right over here and say, am I on the right track, Dick? And he usually says, okay. So, you know, <laughs> if he was here, if he were here, he right. may be, I don't know. But yeah, it um, may be informing your decisions. Yeah. Make, I don't yeah. know how else any of this could have occurred, but it's a lot of standing over your shoulder. <laughs> and, uh, and there is a little bit of light jazz in the score too, but I always want, I wanted to make it very cinematic. And I think people responded well to the score because it's, it's period. It's realistic to it. Often when I've watched silent films, especially, you know, like in Turner classics, they're scored in a modernistic manner. And it just, I don't know, for whatever reason, I, as much as I love all kinds of music, something's funky about it. It can be cool. It can be really good, but I don't know. I, I prefer kind of get into that era. And well, and, what kind and, of challenge would it be in the, in, in the time? Let's say it's 1938 and this film is being played and you had to sit next to the, to the screen and play uh, in sync with the film. What kind of challenge would that be? Well, uh, silent, silent films stopped, you know, about 1929. So this was, and this is this is one reason people try to have a problem with this movie, is that it's 1938 and sound film had been around. So they go, well, why isn't this a sound film? Why is it silent? Well, he explored. He silence. didn't have the money for that. Probably. He didn't have the equipment. You 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 know, we look at everything in our terms. We have a a damn movie camera in our phone. Oh my yeah. God! You know. He had to get a movie camera if he wanted to record sound. He couldn't do it. There, there wasn't even yeah, recording was, equipment available to synchronize his, it. His mom One reason, gifted him a movie camera to begin with, right? Yeah, and, and you know, and and just having the ability to try and sync stuff, which is one reason why Disney became interested in him, his technical ability. Uh, I mean, he worked for Disney doing you know, uh, models, uh, yeah, reference Fantasia models. Fantasia and some other stuff. Yeah, Fantasia, Pinocchio, and um, oh, uh, Dumbo. Dumbo. Uh, he designed the Dumb Bomber, which uh, yeah. was a, a, a model that became kind of a World War II uh, fundraiser that Disney created, you know, these kind of crazy war rally movies and stuff. Yeah, yeah let's have Mickey Mouse, let's shoot some Nazis, you know. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what it was. That was the time, you know, so I, I don't know, but, uh, and then he, you know, he really did have a remarkable career after that. And, 
and and the reason why I my best reason why he we don't know him like we know Orson Welles, who was identical almost in age, uh, is that I think going to war pulled him out of the game. It did give him a completely different view on life, and he did he did like you know a classified film for the, <laughs> the army yeah. and, and a UN film that set that up, and he was involved in a lot of things. But when he came back. I don't think he, he, and he was also his own guy. So I think working for Disney, he was on the track of becoming a director. He was already doing some assistant directing there, but then he kind of got drafted and um, got pulled out. And when he came back, those positions weren't there, or he was like, I don't know about that. And he wound up back on the East Coast, developed his own production company. Well, Wells has a Well, he started in like theater and radio too. He had a different yeah. path. Yeah, the and they, but he built a following. No, they both had these kind of little theater companies initially. Uh, there, there's a lot of interesting, uh, you know, uh, parallels. Parallels to, to to Wells. And you look at it as the Earth turns. You got these angle shots, and and I'm thinking, man. And when I first saw this movie, it would blew me away because again, yeah, you kind of forgive him for the effects. He had no money. He was blowing stuff up as a kid. I mean, you know, <laughs> think about that, you know, using explosive caps and, you know, but right. most of that stock is not stock. I mean, most of the film is not stock film. It's stuff he actually did. And there's a lot of stories about all the, the little things he did, which lead to my, my current project, which is pretty much over the top. I've developed this. I've been developing a screenplay about his first 20 years in Seattle, which I think are the, the meat of this this whole thing, as much as he did really amazing things, including stuff in the Mideast and all that. Uh, man, an inspirational story in the style of like Tucker. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, somebody kind oh, of on hey, their own. Man. Yeah. And, and Disney, you know, told his son once um, that Lyford could tell a story in 30 minutes better than most most uh directors he'd ever seen and he and we're talking about short educational films that that lifer did that you know we i probably saw as a kid about the railroads you know something like that but he was expert at that he really knew how to do it. he worked with really good people like walter pigeon and you know well, we should note that he the academy award, he won the academy award for well, a film called know. titan about michelangelo right yeah he didn't actually win it uh he yeah, it's you can get it on DVD. He directed it uh, and edited it, but Robert Flaherty um, was the uh, was the actual producer on that. Which he and Flaherty is the one who accepted the award. And then I forgot who's the, there was one other person involved in this that's not listed on here. Frederick March does the narration. Uh, who had done like Nanook of the North? I mean, go way back. This is like the most famous video uh, documentary ever. He right. was involved in this too, so uh, Lyford was was in very good company uh, as well. But yeah, he was involved in that. It was like 1950, so right. it gave him some some credentials uh, to work. But he was always his own guy, and that's, that's my and, recent bias, bias. I guess you got to win everything. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, the whole point. You, you know, you won, you lost, but <laughs> yeah, he was involved I, in the project, though, right? Yeah, and and Disney also kind of said, you know, that ability. That kind of craziness that Lyford had is one reason he's so good and why he had to be independent. And mm -hmm. Disney did try to bring him back to do more and more. And he did work on Wonderful World of Disney stuff uh, in the 60s mm -hmm. and 70s World and had color. some really good success on that. 
but I think he was older and, you know, kind of missed the boat with Disney on that. Not that I'm, I'm, I don't, not sure that was ever his role any more than I could have been to LA. You know, if I hadn't have gone to music, I would have gone to right turn and headed to Cal arts. Interesting. I, you know, I pro I probably would have gotten to know Spielberg and people like that. And my, my, Mother's cousin is Harv, was Harv Bennett, who wrote Star Trek two through six, along with uh, the oh, the Mod Squad and the Six Million Dollar Man. Oh yeah. wow! Jeez, I mean, he was like the cool. sixth Beatle, you know, with with Star Trek. He he was the reason why Star Trek is on today because after the first Star Trek movie, they weren't sure they were going anywhere, and when when Search for Spock came on, or, or the I love that one, first Star Wrath Trek. Of, Wrath of Khan, yeah. When that came out, he he made that work. And didn't I didn't you think that? Didn't you think that first? One, uh, didn't you think that first one was beautifully shot? Though it I was mean, a it was wonderful film, and laborious, but it looked fantastic. Yeah. But yeah. I'm just saying, Paramount was yeah, not thrilled because they didn't they didn't really make movie. the money they thought. And it was the first yeah. thing away from the series twenty, you know, I don't know, ten years after it. But after the second one, all of a sudden the story came back, right. and and it wasn't just the, you know a, a sci-fi yeah. thing, you know. Anyway, Montalban now. And I just, I've been watching Strange New Worlds, and this is all directly related to my, you know, relative yeah. that, that I'm watching this stuff. So that's not lost on me. So I would have had a very different life if I'd gone that direction. Whatever, you know, my choices have taken me here, and I'm still this kind of independent person. So here I am writing a screenplay now. I have no business doing this whatsoever. On the other hand, why not? I was making Super 8 movies as a kid, <laughs> you know. I I made a pandemic film on my own. I directed, starred in it, and then all the, you know stuff. I really pushed it, but again, I I I'm I'm talking about making a truly professional thing. Just like you know, if you if I was a screenwriter and somebody asked me to to write a symphony or a score to a film, I'd probably go, I don't think so. So that so what I'm doing right now is I'm working with a extraordinary screenwriter. After I've kind of I've maybe created 50 to 70 percent of it which he, he was very nice to say that I, I i'm his my screenplay was much better than most of his students in film school that's great and and i went right to a feature biopic <laughs> you know, this is not a short film so just the understanding of formatting is is a challenge on screenplays right. so i i created this thing and we've been working for about a month now and this guy is serious stuff i mean he works with everybody in hollywood he, and he's also northwest based jonathan kesey uh, and we have a, a production company, Mind Riot, that he runs as well that has people here and in L.A. And our goal is to make a serious run at pitching this thing. So we have months to go to clean up the script. Uh, it's intimidating as hell, yeah. uh, but I'm learning daily the process involved. Uh, it's not like writing a book. It's not narrative. It's all action oriented. And this is something I really hadn't thought of when you, you know, when you create a screenplay, you assume, well, you write enough and the director takes it. No, you tell the director exactly what you want. Now, what they do with it, that's another story. But you don't say, you know, so and so did this. You have them do this. You say, you know, so and so is walking down the street or, and then they say what they're going to do. Yeah. And that's a very different process than what I think people are used to. It makes screenplays very, very unique kind of. Why don't we go ahead and stick our commercial break in here? Uh -huh. Did you have an opportunity? I listened to your first podcast. So, um, and it, you, I think you suggested you had an opportunity during the pandemic to connect with Roger Corman. 
Well, I didn't I didn't really connect with them, but I the pandemic film, I was inspired to do it because Corman on Facebook put out the first and last Roger Corman pandemic film festival. <laughs> <laughs> and he wanted everybody he thought it was really cool of him to do this. He got hundreds yeah. of entries, you know, everybody and it was they had to be under two minutes. You had to have it all done in your household with people in your household. And, you know, I assumed it was going to be kind of a horror genre. So I, I created it. It's on my, my uh, YouTube channel. Uh, and it kind of came out pretty cool. And, of course, I scored it. Oh. You know, I figured I have an advantage with that. And I've done other kind of experimental films where I've, I've shot stuff. I have a little Nikon non-DSLR in my phone and stuff like that. It's, you know, again, it's amazing what you can pull off. Uh, and, and more and more, I, you know, I, I can kind of do these things myself. I'm a little more confident I can do it. But it didn't win that, and there was nothing to win. But bragging rights that, you know, I, you know at least I, I assume Roger yeah. Corman looked at it. Yeah. Great. Right. You know, yeah. apparently he might be involved in this next one. I don't know. The but, horror <laughs> master laid his eyes on it, probably. Yeah. 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 No, if I'd really known about that, we'd have written, I've already written it in my head. So, yeah. You know? Your it's horror story? No, the the pandemic story. Oh, okay. It's based on the cat. Okay. How does how does, Solomon. how does the soundtrack go from what you wrote to what we hear? Is is there like an orchestra or a band that plays this, or do you do this all with um? Like oh boy, I really hate to give that away. <laughs> you don't want to give that away. <laughs> well, the the, okay. the issue is, is if if I say it's by the East West Orchestra, people go, oh, okay. And uh, those in the know, the composers of the know, know that's software. <laughs> so I performed as much as I could of it live, and that's mostly percussion and things like that. And then I was able to create the fact that people think it was real yeah. is fine with me. And I, I hate to destroy that illusion. But, you know, the thing about all forms of art as film is it's all an illusion. It's a grand illusion, literally. Sure. Uh, and and that's a, been a learning experience. I mean, that's something I've been picking up on, on for years. What you see in the movie is what's literally between this. And there's all sorts of other stuff going on, but the, the director wants right here. This is all they're going to see, right there, you know, whatever over here. Yeah. And then the music has to be the same sort of thing. It's it's what you decide to put in there. That That's it. What makes, I think, a silent film is that uh, there is no dialogue. So everything about the music has to support it has to be the dialogue. It has to be the emotions. You know, when well, that's I'm like asking, a palette for you. That's almost like that's probably very attractive. It's in well, it's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, it's also heavy responsibility because right. when you're when you're doing underscore again, I can you know a lot of underscore these days is just kind of you know you just hear this little stuff. And it's usually lower because it doesn't want to interfere with your you know with the. Uh, I, I gotta ask you. I gotta ask you this. Do you ever watch Lifetime movies? Uh, if I can stand it, yeah. <laughs> Do you know how they always have this like light banter between them? And then there's like this plucky music. Oh, well, that's like reality stuff. And I have a lot of reality tracks that are like that, you know. Oh, that no. drives me crazy. It's like a dog whistle. I mean, it's like I cannot. Yeah. Well, it's, it's typical a Lifetime of... movie when you hear that. Or uh, what was that? Desperate Housewives? They did it too. It was well, like. It... Sure. Reality TV is not scored. Reality TV, you, they, they actually what they do rather than purchasing individual tracks, they used to. And I have yeah. a lot of tracks on reality TV, like Real Housewives and 
you know, well, the, junk like that. Yeah, this, wasn't, this was reality TV. This is scripted TV. Oh, yeah. I know, I know, but it's, it's, it's similar. Yeah. A lot of that draws right. from that kind of era. A lot of comedy is this, you know, you know, that kind of, and it's very light in the background. It doesn't, yeah. so it's pretty easy to create, you know, I, I would say it's going to be any good, but. You know. Well, the other thing that bothers me is when they take a popular song and they try to make it sensual or something by make that drawing it out and maybe yeah. having a, a woman singing it real slow and. And it's like that's another device that's really emerged that really well, yeah. And and lyric um, writing is a, that you now you have the lyrics to contend with, and those are a challenge against dialogue. So they're usually saved. In fact, when you write music that's going to have lyrics to it to get it synced, you usually have to have a instrumental version, a bed, yeah. so that you have somebody singing a song with it, and then they stop singing and while the dialogue comes in you know well they'll take something like every breath you take and it'll be on csi and it'll be about stalker because they're watching you or something right. it's like it is so generic it just drives me insane but yeah. like no, but who are some crazy. who are some of your favorite uh like you mentioned bernard herman and i could totally get that because the musical score for a hitchcock film was always uh, integral to the enjoyment of the movie like psycho I mean, well, Herman, yeah, Herman's a master. I mean, he, you know, he did, he was one of the original teams with Hitchcock. I mean, and, and it didn't mean they got along real well, but uh, Hitchcock kept going to him and he, he was a master. A lot of the, you know, 1930s, 40s composers came from Europe uh, and were classical composers. And then they make a living. They went to LA and got, and I mean, you listen to those films, those classic films, man, these are heavy people. Prokofiev scored music for movies, you know. So there's crazy stuff going on. And, and Herman maintained this original sound always. You know, we tend to think of him for cycle. That's something like that. But what I loved about Herman was these incredible bass organ, you know, while the, you know, the, you know, just, you know, big chords coming on, things like that. And then stuff like uh, North by Northwest, where you have this polyrhythmic you know sort of thing and I, I used a lot of those influences in as the earth turns because i just dug them i mean there's a there's the earthquake scene and i'm doing a rhythm that only a percussionist would do Mo most people can learn three against two which is if i if i were to teach it would be together right left right together right left right and what you'd hear is one two three one two three on one hand with two on the other one, two, one. See, I've been teaching for 40 years. But anyway, but to do four against three, that's a little harder. The fact that I can talk while I'm doing this or change it the other way. Anyway, I have four against three going on orchestrally. That's not done by a lot of composers out there because you got to find orchestras that can play that stuff. But again, if it's electronic, hey, I can pull it up. So I was real proud of that moment that I was to create this this just building scene of this heavy orchestra getting more and more intense in this crazy polyrhythmic way. The audience doesn't really hear the polyrhythm, but they, they hear things starting to deconstruct and fall apart, which I think is what I was going for uh, against an earthquake. You know, that's kind of what's going on. Right. And it has to kind of come from somewhere. So it, because it was through scored where I wasn't, you know, scoring seconds, I was scoring maybe minutes of music that I would let it dribble and then let the orchestration create some of that change. It was going. Cause it was yeah, going well, through. The, the film I thought was the, the, the light and the dark, you know, and I, I'm, I've always put out a disclaimer from the top that I don't know from music, you know, other than what I like, you know, it's like, but 
the, the score was really good. For the <laughs> film, you really. mean that? <laughs> the score was really good and and uh, built built the tension in the film and really you know you almost didn't need you didn't need to see the captions to know what was going on based on the uh, the story you know, that the music the was telling. We were yeah. able to. I was well, like, "Yep, that's what it was going to say." Yeah, well, and, no, and, 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 and they they are. I mean, they actually are speaking the dialogue, and, and I think uh, you know when when uh, filmmakers went through the silent era, they realized we think about pick captions. That's different than sub than um, uh, intratitles in where you have the you know flashing thing. They have to be very minimal, otherwise you'd have them. It, it would get in the way. It would you know, it would be too much, be uh, and they have to hang just right so that put a book on the screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you have the you know Star Wars scrolling thing. You know, I have enough of that in these to just give some context to these things. But no, I, I agree. I think a great silent film leads very little dialogue, if any. That's there just to kind of confirm, oh, yeah, this is going to happen. And yeah. he was this tremendous uh, artist, visual artist. He could draw with either hand. Oh. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm working that into the screenplay. Um, so he, that his even just his drawing of the, of the, the, the letters and the things like that, so easy to read. Um, you know, you have the, the fake newspapers, all that stuff. I mean, that was all hand done stuff. Right. We, we look at it as like, well, it could be done with, you know, a computer. Like, no, there were no computers in 1938. There was no nothing. Yeah. You hardly had access had to a, a personal typewriter. computer anyway. The, the scene, the metaphor, I was metaphor wondering. This, the, doc, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde scene from a different uh, yeah. piece. Uh, the scalpel. Yeah, it took him hours and hours. Six hours to film that thing. Yeah, that's in his articles on there. Uh, he, you know, he was he was basically learning how to be Lon Chaney at that point. Uh, and and I love his visual expressions in the film. He's got this crazy eyebrow thing that I just think is his his mm -hmm. thing. You know, just uh, no that that those were things he was acutely aware of, and he he had done theater uh, mm -hmm. in in high school and all the rest of it, so he knew makeup very well. Uh, and, and I think the funnest story that's going to be part of the, the screenplay is like straight out of Adam's family where he had been doing, um, Dracula in his basement theater. <laughs> yeah. Figure that out. And, uh, that's a whole thing. That's a supportive parents. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, well, to an extent actually, but that we're, we're kind of getting deeper into that. I, mean, I, I was very, and, and the basement theater. That's when another I made, story. when I made the documentary, I was trying to be really, really kind to everybody. And I'm not saying there was a lot of antagonism or anything like that, but I think the dad really wanted him to go into the timber business and all the rest of it. So you have kind of a classic, Great it's not all that yes. different. So than, it was more the mom putting, putting seats in down in the basement. Well, I think she was, I think he was doing that, but I think the, where did he get the seats is the big question. Because uh, they had theatrical seats eventually in there, and then he had a proscenium, and it was the Oriental Theater. I mean, he had been Ironically, he had to buy timber. Yeah, yeah well, that's true. <laughs> you know, but he knew how to use this stuff, and, and he made all these models and things. Um, but but no, I, I think that he, he was, you know, remarkable in what he did at that time. So this this, he's doing Dracula since he was seven, and then at one point in grade school or whatever, um, the school advised him to do it there, and uh, and he does it there, and he kind of makes the effects a little more realistic, like blood and stuff like that. And uh, so they the the cast got kicked out of school for a couple of days. <laughs> Can you see that? I mean, when I when I read that, I thought I got to make a movie of this. 
So that, yeah. that, was, that was a deal breaker right there. I thought that I'm just casting that young man's going to be your, you know. Yeah. That's a well, huge thank, deal. Yeah. Thank you for bringing it to mm-hmm. lights. I mean, that's a, you know, film aficionados owe you a debt of gratitude mm-hmm. for putting all yes. this effort into it and bringing mm-hmm. this figure to life, you know, this Orson Welles like contemporary. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I appreciate it as a yeah. fan of. Uh, yeah. Well, I appreciate that, too. And, I enjoy and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and and this has created a completely unique experience for me. Right. Yeah. I, I, again, never saw coming in the world, uh, but it's an extension of everything I've been doing. And I've always looked at serendipity as kind of the rule of the land and uh, all of the connections in my life are always coming together at some point. And the more I'm aware of that, the the more I do. And and at this particular moment in my life where I'm dealing with some pretty interesting challenges, this is a this is a heavy deal. And and I'm I have a very target laser targeted goal here to to make sure this is going to mm-hmm. actually happen. I have no interest in losing this script to somebody in LA and even having them buy it out uh and right. have it disappear. And that's where most scripts wind up. That doesn't mean no good, nothing. The irony in my situation is I I couldn't even take that kind of money. I I literally can't for other reasons. But and that's an irony in itself. (laughs) You were talking about Richard, Richard Leifert um, and his legacy in film. So as we wind down here, the H is for Hoover. It's just for Hoover. That's right. As we wind down here, we have a couple. Uh, I, I feel like we should reserve a couple minutes here to talk about Frank. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We got a couple Frank uh, fans here. Yeah, uh, yeah. Phil said one size fits all, and uh, Waka Jawaka are two of your favorites. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, his yeah. instrumental music, you know, has always gotten to me. I'm still listening to him. You know, on, on headphones, walking, they can walks around. Uh, I, I think just another band from L.A. is probably my favorite, considering it was all mm. live, and it, it is the most astounding story. That's what, that's what you know, Flo and Eddie, right? Flo and Eddie, yeah. I, I, I don't know when I first heard that. I, I, me and my friends were just constantly quoting "Call any vegetable" or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got some pretty obscene elements in it, but. Uh, it is just funnier that's, than hell. That's got you Billy get, the Mountain on it too. That is it. It's all about Billy the Mountain. Yeah, I I, I can probably that's recite it, and I haven't. I've only you know I haven't listened to it in years. I, it's just it uh, just gets in your head. But I, you know Zappa represents kind of a similar uh, character. I, I don't know to a lot of people in that well, he could have gone. You know he was a, he was originally slated to uh, score films. And he yeah. did. He scored some crazy films that are worthy of mystery science, like uh, the, the Sinner or something like that. Uh, and, and they were very avant-garde scores. And it was a way for him to kind of enter in it and do his more avant-garde stuff. Yeah. And like uh, you, he started as a drummer slash percussionist. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but what was wild about him is he knew uh, avant-garde music really well. Mm-hmm. And he contacted famous uh avant-garde yeah. composer who Ed- edgar verez verez yeah and of course never got anything back eventually did connect mm-hmm. with him uh but you know and then he got wound up into blues and and rock and stuff and you know he, he dug that too and what he did was to bring all that stuff together uh and you know somehow fuse things that never 
had or will ever be combined together again, uh, you know, I, that I can hear, uh, yeah. you know, just serious avant-garde sounds. And then, you know, and then he worked with the best musicians in the world. And, and when people ask me, you know, what kind of music do I like? My answer is usually, I really like music by really good musicians. It's less about the music itself is that I'm, I'm really impressed with the players, the composers, what, you know, the, the, the depth of what's going on. And even the mothers that he had worked with, they found she got fired because he realized for him to do what he wanted to do, he had yeah, to have make couldn't play what he was writing another level. And he brought in people that were just extraordinary, like Terry Basio. A lot of these yeah. guys were classically trained and everything. You, you could hear them with, other great, you know, jazz bands. And the fact that he did stuff like Waka Jawaka, even though he would never consider himself a jazz musician, as he says, you know, jazz isn't different. It just smells funny. Yeah, jazz you is know. not dead. It just smells it's funny. Dead. That's, like, that's close. <laughs> but I, I just, and I saw him a couple of times. I, I saw him in high school and in college uh, with different groups, once with a large group mm. and then once with like a five piece. Uh, and they played... Um, Yellow Snow, what's that one? Oh, watch out where the go. Don't you eat that yellow snow? That album, yeah. yeah. They did the apostrophe, they did the entire album live in, you know, twenty five minutes or whatever. And and yeah. I just to watch that and, and what was wild about that group is, you know, he went from like ten pieces or twelve or something down to five and he had Terry Basio replace like three percussionists, you know. And I yeah, I've had experiences that. like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, went Ainsley Dun Ainsley Dunsbar to Bosnia. Who was before Ainsley was Oh well Ainsley was Chester, before. Chester Thompson. Well that was later. Yeah. I mean he had two drummers at a time too. So Oh that's yeah, that's like the dead, right? And yeah, uh, yeah. We were talking about you that know, at Thanksgiving. He'd have he would have one full on drummer and then one that's and, usually and, a percussionist with like uh there'd be xylophones and vibes and marimbas and Well isn't it true every, in every spite of the in spite of the avant-garde or wild uh, topics of his music and, and, and his reputation, I mean, they were very perfunctory. You know, they, they, he was kind of a taskmaster in the studio. Oh, he, he said when if you went on the road with him, it was it was closer to being in the Marines. Yeah. There was yeah. no drugs. There was no anything uh, because he couldn't have people do that and, and play this yeah. music. It was he too intense. Have, he can't have his drummer in jail. <laughs> yeah. And, he was kind and of that, J.K. That was, Simmons in there. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, he was very respectful to everybody, but he just, you know, if somebody didn't make it, it was like, you got to go. You know, yeah. it, it, there his, was, it was his just, money. This is, he's paying these guys. That's exactly it. He knew the business better than anybody. Then, of course, he got in, into the war with the government and everything else about a, of censorship laws. and War with and Warner Brothers, then a war with the government. <laughs> Right. Okay, now I remember seeing a uh, a debate between him and Tipper Gore. Yeah. In which he, oh, the, you saw that the, P, the PMRC hearings. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He basically ended up going from her saying something about darling Nikki being a problem to him having her defend masturbation on national television. I <laughs> loved it. It was so wonderful. Well, he was he was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he knew he and knew. he wasn't originally supposed to be there. Someone else was. Yeah, yeah. For well, that he had, he'd been doing more and more stuff out there. I, I there's another quote of his which is uh mm -hmm. politics politics is the entertainment division of the military okay. industrial complex. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Exactly. That's a classic. Mm -hmm. yeah. Backed you know, by the uh, pharmaceutical companies. Yeah.
Yeah. Keep well, your you know, kids I, as far away from schools and churches as possible. That's my <laughs> other one. You know, you know, a, a funny story. Um, in the 80s, and this is one of the serendipitous moments, I, I always liked Paul Winter Consort, who was uh, also the uh, group Oregon, which kind of came out of that group. Best musicians in the world. In fact, Colin Wolcott, who played sitar and tabla, went to Indiana a few years before I was there. And I saw him there before he died on the, on the Autobahn. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, I, had, I remember in college writing to Paul Winter and just saying, hey, I'd love to work with you like any idiot in college would, you know. Oh my, he's only working with the, you know, Steve Gadd and you know, right. people like this. Right. And I never heard anything. And don't then ask, in, you don't get. Well, in the mid 80s, um, I got Steve a call Gadd. from a, a friend of mine. Blown in, we're paying him triple scale. Ed Mann's going to show him when to play it later. Right. And and anyway, so a couple years later in, in the mid 80s, I got a call from a friend of mine uh, who's played with him. And I'd worked with her. She's a great oboe player. And uh, Nancy Rumble, who I, I recorded with her and uh, Eric Tinkstead. And she recommended me to him. And he came into Portland, well, he's into Oregon to do a, a kind of a uh, timber, actually, a, a tree cut, what do you call it, uh, when they raid the yeah. uh, lumberjack? Clear cut. Clear. It was like clear. an anti clear cut okay. thing. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I got flown down, and it was a mad, crazy thing. And he had just been coming off of working with Gad in a semi truck of percussion. And I had a drum set there that was supplied in my own and a, and a thing of percussion. And I had to replace him. And, and Glenn Velez was this incredible hand drum player who sounds like 20 people with like a little drum, um, the greatest in the world. And I'm thinking, how am I going to pull this off? <laughs> you know? right. But I knew enough about percussion to understand what was the minimal necessary thing. And, and the best way to explain it is there's what we call in, in rhythm pulse which anybody can do because you got a heartbeat, you walk, you breathe, and pulse. And then there's what we call syncopation. And those are in different levels of difficulty. If I, if I give you a much harder syncopation, that'd be harder to do because it's a longer word. That's really our, our vocabulary. Anyway, but if you put the two together, if you have a pulse and a syncopation, here's a pulse in a bass, and then like a Brazilian bossa nova, that's a full sound. And I knew enough about that balance to understand if you put those two things together in a, in a correct balance, you'll give what the minimal. I wasn't trying to be everybody. But, you know, when, I, when you think about Terry Bazio trying to replace whatever, this was a similar situation. <laughs> did I get the gig? Of course not. But I had a hell of an experience, and I did work with them once again. Yeah. Uh, you know, so th th those were, you know, bucket list items and things. Wow, I never thought I'd do that. <clears throat> So, you know, where, the, where these projects go, I, I couldn't begin to tell you, you know, I, they may go nowhere, they may go everywhere. If, if this film goes anywhere, it could be a, a massive thing. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I can't yeah. wait to finish it. Yeah, good luck with the screen. <laughs> and I mean, it's But my Zappa experience, I, I never got to see Frank live so, in 1988 so, yeah. when I was living in Cincinnati. I was going to see him that night in columbus like yeah. what a little over an hour away and there was an unexpected march blizzard oh, yeah, they closed yeah. the freeway wouldn't let me off work at domino's pizza anyway at that point oh man well, I, I, i'm I really at, sorry you missed that aaron i'm really sorry yeah. you missed that. Sorry, i worked last at tour i worked at no really want to get somewhere in a blizzard call the pizza <laughs> oh, nice. guy yeah. i'm sorry what was it <laughs> 
and you could have been you could have been there in about thirty minutes, or else the pizza was free. Yeah, it would have been free pizza for Frank. Yeah, <laughs> but I've, well, I, I have I seen my... I've seen Dweezil upwards of twelve times. Yeah, I've, I saw I, banned I, from Utopia once. I saw Dweezil's thing when he first did it in Seattle and Portland. That wound up on the DVD. They, had, they had the cameras there. Yeah, yeah, that was a wonderful show. That that was as yeah. good as any of the Zappa shows. I can tell I you that. I saw the last show of that first tour was yeah. my first Dweezil show, and yeah, I was. No, I'm saying I if was, even if you I missed was weeping Frank, openly in the, in the. Even if you hadn't seen Frank, that was you know I was ninety nine percent Frank. Yeah, you know, yeah. that one percent was literally Frank. And but, like Frank, yeah. he has different size you know outfits with him all the time. Sometimes and that was with Fazio. As a second yeah. drummer out in front, you know. When I saw him, Basio had uh, pulled some kind of tendon or ligament oh. in Arizona a day or two before. So he was the, the he did a couple things with one handed drumming, <laughs> and then he was a front man for like three or four songs. Good singing, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah Steve Vai was there for that show. Circle of drums. <laughs> How's it possible for Dweezil to be that talented? I mean, what's the coincidence? What's the chance? I mean, to have, uh, you know, genetics are in play. I mean, like Wolfgang well, Van Halen can play uh, Unchained or just, you know, or uh, Eruption. He locked him. He locked himself in a room basically for a couple of years and started learning the material note for note. <laughs> I, I think he was just driven, and and he yeah. respected as he realized what his dad was, and then realized the legacy he had to oh, deal with. Band. Yeah, that's beautiful. So, beautiful yeah, I, I'm not sure, you know. You can claim a lot for genetics, but I, I, you know, I think the voice is the closest thing you can talk about that he has a similar voice yeah. quality to pull he, off. He doesn't even sing. But I know he it's rehearsed that band for John's voice. It's his natural voice. He just doesn't want to. Well, that's another story. I, I know that Dweezil spent two years rehearsing his band before they they did this, and they, he knew how hard it was going to be. Which that 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 was the big thing is that he yeah he really that original band. I think it's only Sheila left. Everybody else Could has been be. turned over. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been a blast as always. Um, mm -hmm. So, Ed, if you have uh, anything, I, I can see your URLs, but this is going to be an audio broadcast. So, if you could give us uh, right. some things, you get your socials. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you Google Ed Hartman music, you're going to get to me one way or the other. But um, yeah, edhartmanmusic.com is the the best way to find it. As the earthturns.com has its own website. And links to, you know, wherever the film is available, and it's on uh, Amazon, Tubi, Google, YouTube, you know, the pay pay version stuff like that. And uh, I don't know if it's going to be on TCM again. I'd love to see it there, but uh, the contract was kind of for three years, and uh, we're kind of coming to the end of that. Where it goes from there, I don't know. You know, I, I assume if something happens with my movie, there's going to be a completely different look at these things. They're going to become a whole nother level of interest. Right. And well, then uh, on, I'm on Facebook and all the usual stuff out there. And I, I encourage if anybody wants to friend me on any of those things to contact me first, because I get, you know, too many weird. If you're not in the music side or the film yeah. side or something like that, I may have trouble. Yeah, I kind of blindsided you, know. you the other day, but you were gracious enough to accept. Oh me. no, I always I want I knew I was like wait a minute, but I always double check if there's more, and then yeah. I saw there's wait a minute, yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> red flags. <you> know? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I appreciate all this, and again, I'm I'm dealing with some very interesting stuff, but uh, yeah, good luck with that as well. I I know what you're talking about. I didn't know if you wanted to really go into that, but uh, 
Well, we, I, I, I don't mind. I, I'm, you know, yeah. the, the biggest struggle is debating whether I'm defined by multiple myeloma or I'm defined as I prefer as a musician, composer, whatever. And yeah, I think you anybody that, with it? I'm sorry. It's incurable, but manageable. Mm. And I was diagnosed at the beginning of, last, of this year. Uh, it, right, my, it, yeah. And I have a blog for anybody that's interested with, you know, kind of its own uh, it's password a, protected. Is yeah, there a my, charity my, or a website? That, no, no, I'm not, we're not raising money or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but we're doing okay. We're fine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for for the, the disease itself, do they have like a... Like, oh. a, like American Cancer Society. Oh, yeah. there's, there's many. There's many like yeah. lymphoma, like uh, leukemia and lymphoma society, all sorts of stuff. And I've written some articles for those now. So I, I'm I'm out there. I'm not hiding it. It's just mm -hmm. you know, is it my lead? <laughs> you know. Right. I get um, that. I mean, if if you're interested, I I wrote a song about it, and mm -hmm. um and I on a couple of uh, the support groups and some national things I've actually sung it live and I'd be happy to do that here yeah, I haven't I looked at that. it in a while but it might be one way to finish this thing up that'd be um, perfect yeah. you can yeah, play us out and, and, yeah I can I can attempt this again it's been a while so I, I haven't really looked at it in, in a while but I, I recorded it it's a, it's available on my website and uh, was this gonna thing gonna hold edhartmanmusic.com yeah yeah one N and Hartman yeah, hold on a second here. I gotta figure out how to do this. This is this is not easy to pull off live here, but uh, on the, on the recording, we'll be, I have drums, we'll be forgiving. <laughs> drums and everything else. Let's see here. Well, I went to my dock one day, feeling a little blue. My hemorrhoids were acting up, and a checkup was about to do. Well, there was some rib pain. My shoulders were shot, and my knees were giving out, and my temperature was hot. The doctor did some blood tests and said there was a fuss, and before you know it, I was diagnosed with MGUS. Well, I didn't know what that meant. But I, although I had an answer, one look at my computer told me this was a form of cancer. I had an MRI, a PET, and something really scary. A bone biopsy on my back really was quite hairy. The time was near and his voice was clear. This was the moment I knew it was clear. I got the multiple myeloma blues. Well, I got that standard treatment and it hasn't been that bad. The drugs are crazy and neuropathy feels like sand. I got a Hickman catheter with tubes in my chest. It's a weird little thing that's always getting dressed. The team chemo is wild and the shots are a pain. The steroids get me moving because the patient drives me insane. Well, I'm going to the clinic. They're going to harvest some stem cells, killer chemo on the way, and I know it'll be hell. Once the transplant is done, it'll time for me to be immune, but I'll be out of the basement and see the world soon. We're called warriors for short. I guess that kind of fits. We're battling to live. Remissions are bet I got the multiple myeloma balloons. Well, now, don't get me wrong. I still got hope. New therapies are coming. I know I can cope. The fatigue is real, and the drugs are intense. You can lose your taste or smell and mess up your sense. There's lesions on your bones, and they won't go away. Your feet will get numb, and steroids will make you pay. I got the multiple myeloma balloons. It's like every damn disease, except I don't have a clue. Well, there ain't no cure, and I hope I'm not screwed. I got the multiple myeloma balloons.
fantastic, man. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that was very therapeutic for me, though. No, that's great, man. Good luck. You've been a great Thanks guest. Thanks for being on, Ed. It, think it's, it's very manageable. And, um, you know, the latest, I, I had the transplant about six months ago. So I'm, I'm coming out of all of that stuff. Uh, and, you know, the doctors say, well, in 2022, even though this thing's incurable, your survival rate is, you know, seven to 10 years, pretty typically. And when I first got it, they, the doctors who were not specialists were saying, you know, yeah, a couple of years. I'm like, <laughs> 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 you know, that's like, what? Good for you to say, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm 65. So, you know, seven to 10, I'm not sure I'm really lasting a whole lot longer than that anyway. So, you know, I don't, and, and a cure is likely in five years, as best I can hear. You know, they, there, there's a lot of chat going on that Queen Elizabeth had this. Okay. Yeah. But she was 98 or whatever, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I don't think any, I'm going to die of it. The question is quality of life. And so the big thing that happens is you make your choices very carefully on how you want to spend your time. And from that standpoint, this has been an extraordinary event. Yeah, when something like this happens, and it was pretty heavy when it happened. I mean, I had a lot of issues and pains and stuff. I, I was in the hospital for about a week with hypercalcium, which basically kills you. And that came out of literally nowhere, you know. So mm -hmm. it can it can ruin you for a decade, and then things happen rather quickly. I literally went in for hemorrhoids yeah. and walked out with cancer. <laughs> well, that, that even humorous. Your problems. <laughs> that makes it even more... Uh, mm -hmm. Special that you chose to spend time with us. And, and well, this and, is what yeah. I'm doing. I'm trying to seek out, you know, places that the stories can come out, and and, and there's a legacy there. So yeah. you know, but I'm I'm hopeful with all these things, and and this this production, all these productions with Lifeford, really satisfy something primal for me, and and give me a tremendous goal, you know, mm -hmm. to pull off to do things I've always wanted to do. I'm literally in my third act. Literally, and, and I'm I'm doing things that I was going to do originally. So that that's hope for everybody that you know it doesn't matter how old you are, you just got achieving your goals. Get to it. Yeah. And I will say that I, I had buddies of mine that passed away in the last decade that I didn't know what their situation was, and and I was on Facebook and saw their pictures, and that was devastating. I you know not to know. So I'm I'm making it a point through the blog to let everybody I know understand what's going on. So. No matter what happens, nobody's surprised. <laughs> you know, yeah, away. It won't be such a shock. Yeah, I think that's yeah. really important. You know, yeah. it doesn't have to be public. You, like lost two of your high school buddies now. Yeah, They're just the one. Yeah, was young, you know. yeah. lost right. a lot. Yeah, yeah. But but thank you All guys. Right. I really enjoyed this. This is a lot of fun, and and uh, you know, I I was able to. Yeah. I felt like I. I got the stories out and all the rest of that. And just keep your eyes open for all this stuff because I think stuff's going to happen in the next year or two. It, it may take a while. Hopefully, I'll be around to see it. Well, we're looking forward to it. We're looking forward to it. It's um, been a lesson. Okay, and, uh, one last question. Okay. Okay. Um, is there anything we didn't cover that you – that I'll uh, see if something will click in your mind that we, you know, that you would like to have gone over? Hmm. <laughs> Put you on the spot. Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm still teaching drums here and there and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, my, my focus is on creation. My, my mother, there was a comment she made at some point when she was older and, and uh, before she passed away. And I was telling her what I was doing. And she said, creative is good. <laughs> that was it. She was a brilliant psychologist. I mean, extraordinary. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was just really a, a wonderful Sage advice. Right? Yep. Yeah, no, I'm still abiding by that, you know, to this day. So every and I try and teach the concepts and, you know, and I it's it's coming full circle a lot. So it's less about what I'm doing is is how I'm doing it. Um, and it and it's there the, again, the screenplay is so out of out of my normal line. It's it's I mean, if you really want to get out of your comfort zone, <laughs> this is and then to work with work with a master. What's that? Try to learn something new while doing it. Yeah. And, and to work on it with a master of yeah. what they are, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I feel like a, a kindergartner working with a, you know, yeah. Beethoven or you know, like, kind of like, yeah. that's kind of like what Eli's going through here, I guess, with the, with Matthew, you know, a little bit mentorship, a little bit of a, yeah. 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 Uh, Eli is Aaron's son. That's on film doing film work. Yeah. 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 He's in the other room. Still working on his screenplay outline, I think. Right. Well, he's listening to this. <laughs> yeah. He's a determined kid. He will. He, I mean, he'll probably come up with a. He's taught, he taught himself page. Japanese. Yeah. Yeah, I tried. I tried Japanese for a few months. Just try to figure it out. I didn't forget it. <laughs> I did learn uh, Russian uh, and Spanish and Hebrew growing up, and I can't speak none of them because I was not taught conversationally. And that, that's one thing about music. I mean, you know, I th- people you, you can intellectualize all this stuff. Uh, I can talk about a D minor chord, but you have to feel it. And that's what happened to me musically as I moved from the intellectual discussion to just feeling it through improvisation. Mm-hmm. And then it just flows. And, and I'm hopeful I can get that with screenwriting, uh, get beyond the technical aspect of it. And of course, working, uh, luckily working with somebody that knows that they can make the proper adjustments and I can focus on the story. So right. again, it's not just a matter. Of, oh, I got an idea for a story. You know, let's make a movie. And that's not it. Right. it. It has to. It has to read really well. And there's a lot of uh, strategic planning. If you want to get something made, yeah. you, you have to think about you know who's involved and how you get interest on there. So you so know, we know that you know, for instance, Boeing about. was a big player in this whole thing. So we're you know we're yeah. making that a good part of this, and uh, and they they will very likely will get involved. Oh, well, (laughs) that's a very good uh, benefactor right there. Yeah, and it may not be financially, but just, you know, (laughs) those become assets that you can attach to a film to make a difference. So, and Lifeford was, uh, you know, it wasn't quite like Z-League or or Forrest Gump, but he was around Mm -hmm. some interesting people in his life and and there were connections and, you know, the the timing of when things happened. So I'm, I'm working, well, Disney. I mean that's yeah. the obvious one. The fact that he he was a he worked for Disney and he was involved with them over many years. Um, you know, there obviously there's some interest. And and when I had to research my documentary, I was in touch with Disney pretty heavily. And you know, they corrected a few things, or they at the very least said, "Well, we don't have, we can't confirm or deny this happened." You know, but mm-hmm. we can't. You know, we won't deny it. But you know, I but I made sure to connect with them, right. uh, and they have a huge history to good idea. There. Well, yeah, I, and I was—I mean, I was very careful about the documentary. I just did all my due yeah, diligence on that. Contacted Massive. the archives. Or... Yeah, and I and I—I I mean, everything got credited carefully. I was dealing with the Ramco directly because he had mm-hmm. these wonderful stories. He was like the first uh, filmmaker in Saudi Arabia, you know, and and his wow. film about uh, about disease was huge, and, was... and because nobody had ever. And seen the movies movie over there. 
they mm. they when they saw this film they were enamored with the concept of film being performed you know it's probably being shown by these mobile projectors and they're just like this is magic and the fact right. that it was talking about disease that they needed to deal with may have been a that may have been the most important thing that he ever did in his life you know just from a a purely life-saving you know, standpoint yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, you can only, you know, and, and I, there was not the intention. He was just, you know, that was just the subject matter he was dealing with. But he knew how to tell the stories. And I, yeah. I've had some wonderful Zooms with people over there, uh, you know, talking about this. That were, there was a Hamad and the Pirates for, for Disney that he directed. And, and I, you know, the family of the, the original guy who played the pirate. Well, the pirate the guy was still floating around a few years ago. And I got to know some of his family and stuff. And, you know, and then he started a big production company in Saudi Arabia as a, as a result of that, or in, I, I don't know, it's in the Mideast somewhere. Yeah. But that, that was an offshoot of that film. You right. Know? When you talk about uh, Force Gump and you're talking about you evoke these names, I'm like, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot that he did, yeah. and there was a lot mm -hmm. of very uh, uh, progressive. I keep going back to progressive, but I mean, there was a lot of. Ahead of his time. Ahead of his time there. Yeah. yeah. That, that will come out in these projects. So, yeah. all right, Ed, I think we're going to wrap it up. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, You're we welcome do have to come to back it. and do a Frank Tonight. Zappa Aaron <laughs> audio audibles if you want to, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Pleasure, pleasure to meet yeah. you. Ed. You bet. I, I'm not the authority on Zappa, but I've listened yeah. to enough of it. I think I, oh, I offer the musician's about. point of view with him, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. Is it like Aaron's Audibles is like a uh, an album review. So we take a single it's, album. I, I take an album Phil's yeah. never heard before and make him listen to it, and then we do a deep dive. Right. right. Yes. It's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm beginning that. to think he automatically picks things I'm not going to like. <laughs> I just think no. your taste don't line up. So. Yeah. yeah. All right, Ed. The monkey. I think you probably you probably like Big Star. All right, bye everybody. Who? You guys have a good. I'm day. a juggalo. She is a juggalo. That's for another episode. <laughs> All right. You're saying that. Good night. Thanks. Good night. All right. Thank you, guys. Yep. Bye. It was good talking to you. Bye. Too bad. We have social. Twitter. Yeah. Uh-huh. Pod. Instagram. Yeah. Uh-huh. Pod. Facebook. Yeah. Uh-huh. Pod. Website. www.yeah-uh-huh.com. So let us know. Hit us back. Have a great week. Bye.